Hey there. Welcome to the lounge. Is it hot enough for you? Are you sick of it yet? I'm proud to report that my ass is still connected to my body. It hasn't sweated off. But there's a lot more summer to come. I'll keep you posted. Wherever you are, I hope you'll find a cool spot near a body of water to unfurl a beach towel or a folding chaise, get your hands on a cool summer drink, and lounge with us for the next hour or so. We've got stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythms of the season. This month, we're behaving like civilized adults, and we're taking a vacation. Consequently, what you're going to hear today is an unabashed and unapologetic best of the lounge, so far. I've dug through the archives and pulled up the pieces that I think best represent what we've been trying to encourage in you for the last nine months. We'll hear the burglars of Ham perform their modern February fable, The Unloved Man. We'll go all the way back to episode one for my conversation with Matt Almos and his father David about the worst mall in the world. We'll revisit my conversation from June with my son Vincent where we discuss what it means to be fully who you are, even when everyone tells you it's impossible. And I chose the dinner and a movie segment from January, because I think it complements that conversation in a delicious way. And we'll hear three tunes, arranged and performed by our musical director, John Ballinger, and performed by him, our house band Double Batch Daddy, plus some special guests. So... Here we are, the dog days of summer. Sunrise in Los Angeles today came at 6.10, and sunset mercifully arrives at 7.46. In between, it's all sunshine and heat with no end in sight. The dog days officially end August 11th, but the heat is bound to stick around through September. I've always imagined that the dog days of summer refer to the way a dog spends every day, sleeping and eating mostly. We get to spend August behaving like dogs ourselves because really, it's too hot to do much else. But I learned that the period between July 3rd and August 11th are called dog days because the sun occupies the same region of the sky as the star called Sirius which, aside from being the brightest star visible from Earth, is part of the constellation Canis Major, or the Greater Dog. In fact, Sirius is often called the Dog Star, and when the Sun and Sirius align on July 23rd, ancient Romans believed that the brightest star in the sky added its heat to the Sun, creating days unfit for man nor beast. And that's how the 20 days before and the 20 days after July 23rd became known as the Dog Days of Summer. In many European and Asian cultures, the entire month of August is designated as a holiday. Folks from the north travel to the south, and folks from the south do the opposite. Shops are closed, or they're only open for a few hours a day. In this we might notice that August is the sister month of February, when the frozen earth is inhospitable to planting and we take a winter's nap before we march back into action. Same here. 
The planting months of March and April are behind us, and the hard work of the harvest months of September and October are ahead. It's wise to take a little break from all the heat, knowing that we'll be back to work soon enough. Yes, friends, the season cycle goes round and round, as this song by XTC, arranged by John Ballinger and performed by John and Double Batch Daddy, reminds us, is from our March episode called Balance. Darling, don't you ever sit and ponder? Darling, did you ever think about the building of the hills a-yonder? All this life stuff's closely linked. Where we're going in this verdant spiral? Who's pushing the pedals on the season cycle? Round and round and round and round. Season cycle moving round and round. Pushing life up from the cold dead ground. It's rolling green. Summer, they're closing 
Once there was a man who suspected he was not well loved. There were several clues that led him to this sad conclusion. The unloved man went through a 16-hour day with a whole peppercorn in his front teeth and no one told him. He sent out 20 Christmas cards and received only one in return. A pre-printed card from his dentist. He was in a minor car accident and when he posted about it to his Facebook friends, he received no comments and 14 likes. Funnily enough, it was that car accident, the experience of being rear-ended on the freeway, that led to the possibility of a less unloved life for the unloved man. It was the day he met the super-friendly bro. Oh man, I am so sorry. I just looked down for a second. Are you all right? The unloved man checked himself and decided that he was, in fact, all right and physically unharmed. Before him stood an attractive, athletic-looking guy in a Dodgers cap, mid-thirties, the classic, super-friendly bro. I'm all right. I am so sorry, man. I will make this right. The two men looked at the indentation on the unloved man's bumper. The super-friendly bro made a suggestion. different ways we could handle this. Oh? We could get the insurance companies involved, or I could just write you a check instead. How much do you think the damage is? I really have no idea. I'd have to get a couple of opinions from different... How about $2,000? Whoa! That seems like a lot, actually. Whatever, right? This way, neither of us has to mess with any paperwork and our premiums won't be affected. Well, okay. Okay, then. Let's do it. The unloved man went back to work, the check in his pocket. He saw his co-worker sitting in her cubicle. She was a confident woman, perhaps overly confident, and the unloved man was afraid of her. Still, he approached her with some uncharacteristic swagger. I just got a lot of money for nothing. What do you mean? This guy dented my bumper a little, and he gave me 2,000 bucks. Look at the check. I got bad news. His check's no good. What? That check will bounce. Mark my words. The perhaps overly confident woman turned to her computer, apparently bored with the conversation, and him. Wait, how do you know that? I wasn't born yesterday. You should just rip it up. I think I'll try cashing it. Hopefully it's good. I should at least try. (sighs) Sure. Who cares? No one? That's right. No one. That afternoon, the unloved man went to his bank and deposited the check. He also paid some bills. And a few days after that, he received notification from his bank that he was overdrawn and being charged some hefty fees because, as predicted, the check from the super-friendly bro had indeed bounced. It was returned to him in the mail. That... that ass... With growing rage, he realized that the super-friendly bro was, in fact, the man who bounced checks. For short, let's call him the bouncing bro. As he tore the check into tiny shreds, he saw something. The address of the bouncing bro. He clutched the tiny piece of paper and climbed in his rented car. Oh, hey! Hey, sorry to bother you, but... Yes, I know. That check I gave you was no good. Yeah, it bounced, and I was... Sorry about that, man. 
I changed banks recently and I accidentally pulled out my old checkbook. Come in, I'll get you another check. The unloved man did not trust this bouncing bro, but something compelled him to cross over the threshold. As he stood waiting in the foyer, he couldn't help but notice that the bouncing bro had a pool. He imagined the scene of a backyard barbecue, smoke rising from grilled meats, ice sloshing in drinks, friends razzing each other. He pictured talking to a cute but accessible woman poolside, and then two buddies grabbing him from behind, swinging him by his arms and legs until they launched him into the pool. <laughs> it was all in good fun. And anyway, here you go. Sorry about that. This check is good. I swear. Hey, you want a beer? Okay. Come on through. I'm watching the game. The unloved man joined his host on a large couch with recliners built into it. They watched a basketball game. Toward the end of the game, they got hungry and ordered a large pizza, which the bouncing bro insisted on paying for. In the course of conversation, it was revealed that the unloved man had never seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The bouncing bro insisted on putting in Fellowship of the Ring, the extended version, and they watched it while devouring half a pan of brownies and drinking three more beers each. When the unloved man noticed his host yawning, he got up and said he had to be going. They made loose promises to watch the next two movies at some later date. The unloved man walked out to his car and drove home, blasting a classic rock song by Boston. It had indeed been more than a feeling. It had been the best day of his life. His good mood carried through the weekend into the next week at work when he hunted down the perhaps overly confident woman to let her know just how wrong she had been. Hey there. How's it hanging? Uh, fine. Okay. Hey, guess what? You were right. That check was no bueno. Remember, I was in a car accident, and the guy gave me a check. Well, it bounced, but... No surprise there. But get this. The guy's address was on the check, so I went over to his house, and I got him to give me another check. <laughs> another check? Yeah. Man, you never learn. Oh, my... This got the unloved man thinking and worrying. So at lunch, he went to his bank to see if the check had cleared. And to his dismay, the perhaps overly confident woman called it. The check had been returned, and he was once again charged costly fees. He raced to the bouncing bro's house. As he drove, questions ran through his mind. Why is this happening, Why is this to, happening me? to me? Why am I Why such, am I a, such sucker? a sucker? Is there some connection between my willingness to take shit and my inability to be loved? He thought of Aragorn's bravery as the Nazgul descended upon Frodo and his hobbit friends at Weathertop. Aragorn was sensitive and was wise in the medicinal powers of various plants, but he also didn't take any shit. The unloved man knew it was time to stand strong. Hey, buddy. What's up? You must think I'm pretty stupid. What's wrong? You wrote me another bad check. Oh, shit! Are you kidding me? Fuck, what is the matter with me? This is from the old bank account again. See, I have two checkbooks. Look! Listen to me, man. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. No! You must think I'm a total dick. I swear these are honest mistakes. Seriously, look. They look exactly the same, but this is the good one, and this is the old one. Here, look. There. 
The bad one is in the trash. Bye-bye. Now I can write you a check from the good one. Let me find a pen, and I'll do it right in front of you. I don't think so. Maybe you could just give me cash. I would totally go to the ATM, but... I'm a teeny bit baked. You smoke? Marijuana? Yeah. Um, I've... Sometimes. I, I just don't feel like I should drive right now. You already know I'm not a great driver. Hey, what are you doing right now? You busy? I don't know. You up for a little Twin Towers? Come on, what do you say? Pizza's on me. I owe you, obviously. And so, the unloved man experienced the second best day of his life. Or maybe it was a tie. At any rate, another huge pizza was consumed, a little weed was smoked, and at the end of the night, the unloved man had spent more quality time in Middle-earth, where he felt not entirely unloved. Oh, man. What time is it? Sorry to keep you up so late. You probably have to work tomorrow. It's okay. I never wrote you that check. Let me take a leak, and I'll be right back. The bouncing bro ambled out to the bathroom. The unloved man could hear him humming softly, urinating, washing his hands. As the unloved man waited, he contemplated. If he got his $2,000, he might never find out what happened to the two great friends. And he wasn't exactly thinking of Sam and Frodo. He quietly picked the bad checkbook out of the trash, placed it in plain sight on the table, and hid the good checkbook under a magazine. The bouncing bro returned from the bathroom. He wrote another bad check. He handed it to the unloved man and gave him a manly one-armed hug. Drive safe, bro. And with that, the unloved man walked out the door. It was three in the morning. The last time he had stayed up this late was... maybe college? Hard to say. He took note of how quiet the street was, how empty the freeway was, and the unloved man was happy. Perhaps the bouncing bro is putting him on, going through the motions of friendship as a means of distraction. It didn't matter. To the unloved man, those motions felt good. And so the unloved man decided to keep moving on his quest for meaning and comfort and love. The Unloved Man was brought to you by the Los Angeles Theater Collective, The Burglars of Ham. It was written by Matt and Carolyn Olmos, and it featured Matt and Carol, as well as Albert Dayan and John Beauregard. It was the first time since early 2020 that I had live actors here in the lounge. We all had COVID tests the day before we recorded, we celebrated with a meal together on the patio outside the studio, and then we squeezed two by two into my tiny audio booth to record the piece. The feeling was both familiar and strange at the same time. It had been over a year since any of us had rehearsed and performed with other people in the same room. We were nervous. We were also giddy. It felt oddly subversive to be doing this thing that we'd all done without a care in the world for most of our lives. 
It's an evening I'll never forget. As you can probably tell, life from the lounge is a bit of a family affair. In October of 2020, it was my wife, Anne, who suggested that I finally take action on creating that variety show podcast I'd always talked about. We reached out to some of our talented friends and invited them to contribute music and writing and couldn't be more thrilled with the results. But this whole endeavor has permeated my family life for the last year, and my family has been a huge part of its creation. Sometimes, even willingly. As in this piece that my daughter Ruby suggested for our April Showers episode. It felt like the perfect tune for that period when the rollout of vaccinations seemed to signal the end of the pandemic. It's arranged and performed by John Ballinger, with Ruby Farley singing lead singing about those things we used to do. Like a walk in the park, like a kiss in the dark, like a sailboat ride. What about the night we cried? Things like lovers' vow, things we don't do now. Thinking about those things we used to do. Talking about things Like a walk in the park things. Like a kiss in the dark things. Like a sailboat ride What, what about the night we cried on things Like lovers about things That we don't do now Thinking about those things we used to do I can hear the jukebox softly playing And the face I see each day belongs to you Thinking about things Like a walk in the park things. Like a kiss in the dark things. Like a sailboat ride What about, about the night we cried? Things like lovers foul things We don't do now Thinking about those things we used to do You got me thinking about those things we used to do You got me thinking about those things we used to do Part of putting this podcast together was inviting the right people to the table. Matt Almos had worked with my wife Anne on several projects for Disney theme parks, and Anne and I have both been big fans of the Burglars of Ham for years. Anne and I took over dinner and a couple of bottles of wine to Matt and Carol's house. 
and after we'd spent some time catching up, we pitched the idea for Live from the Lounge. Not only did Matt and Carol express interest in being involved, but as we spoke about ideas for the winter holiday episode, Matt mentioned that his family had a connection to the Empire Center in Burbank, which I only knew as the worst mall in the world. Once I heard his story, I knew we had our first conversation in the bag. I want you to tell us a little bit about the Empire Center and what makes it the worst and perhaps most dangerous mall in the world. The Empire Center is, it, it is the worst mall in the world for two reasons, I think. One is that, I mean, people say this of, of malls and strip malls, but this is especially true of the Empire Center. It is uniquely devoid of personality and soul. Usually at a mall, you would have a variety. You would have like a big store that is an anchor and then a bunch of little stores like a Hickory Farms or a Hallmark or something like that. The Empire Center is all big stores, giant stores. There's a Walmart, there is a Target, there is a Lowe's Home Improvement. There is a, well, I mean, it's strange when the most like intimate store there probably is the Best Buy. The second is that it is a, it's a colossal pain in the ass to shop there. The parking lot is an ocean. Nothing makes sense about how the traffic circulates. You get into traffic jams there in the parking lot uh, commonly. If you don't pay close attention, if you get on the wrong sort of circulating road that you think is going to take you from the lows to the target, it will instead like shuttle you onto the the southbound five freeway and you'll find yourself sort of hurtling towards downtown LA. The thing about the Empire Center too, which cracks me up, is that they put the food court like a driving distance away from the stores and in between is just this gargantuan parking lot that's designed to kill you. If not kill you, um, you know. Make you stronger? Make you, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it will make you leave there more frustrated and diminished than you were when you first arrived. So you were at the Empire Center Mall one day picking up a bottle of wine at the Bevmo and you noticed something that was unusual. You know, there are big signs that line the front of the parking lot with the names of the stores and whatnot. And each of these signs has a large graphic representation of an airplane. But I did not think anything of it. And then a couple of years ago, I bought my wife a book for Christmas that is called Lost Burbank. So I was thumbing through this book. Lo and behold, I came across a picture of the Empire Center. And it said the Empire Center was the site of, I think, the main manufacturing plant for the Lockheed Aircraft Company. Tell us a little bit about Lockheed and what they built and how many people they employed and what an operation it was uh, and how it fit into making Burbank what it is. What I have learned is that it truly was an industrial anchor, not just for Burbank, but honestly for the whole LA region. I believe the plant opened in 1928 and nine years later, uh, they had 37,000 people working on the site. Two years after that, they went up to 63,000 people. In 1943, the thick of World War II, that plant had 94,000 people 
working. Can you give me an example of, of someplace else today that's employing a lot of people? Sure. I mean, I know that the largest single site employer in the country today is Walt Disney World. And Walt Disney World currently has about 75,000 employees working on that site. That site is bigger than the island of Manhattan. Today, the developed city of Burbank has a population of 103,000. And you have a relative who worked at Lockheed. Yes. My grandfather worked there. And I always knew my grandpa was a Lockheed guy. I don't think I quite clocked like what he did for Lockheed. And I never clocked where that was physically. Wow, there's a place that's like right under my feet that he like built. <laughs> Unbelievable. We're lucky to have your father with us. Yes. Um, to talk a little bit about what that was like. David Almos, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. My first question, just, David, what are your recollections of your dad? And did you live in Burbank? No, we didn't. We lived in Azusa. Remember, he had people coming from Glendora and also from Pomona. Every day, the employment was drawn from all around the area. What kind of commute is that to Burbank every day? It was about an hour commute, and that was pre-freeway. So it was an hour in and an hour back. And then your shift was? Sometimes I worked during the day and sometimes I worked swing shift and then occasionally work what they refer to as graveyard. That place was going 24 hours a day. And what, what was it manufacturing? Area where my dad worked was what was referred to as skunk work. Basically was a paid thief. He would be asked to go and find something and he would find it and bring it back to the skunk works. And that was for, for planes like the U-2 and the SR-71 Blackbird and, you know, things that there weren't a lot made, but very still. That piece of the Lockheed plant was really just a fraction. My dad sent me a map of the area. I mean, it encompassed the Empire Center. It encompassed Bob Hope Airport. I think it's about a 1,200-acre area. During World War II, it was a strategically important place. This could be a target for enemy bombers. At one point, they, in partnership, I think with designers from the neighboring movie studios, they designed a giant tarp that covered, I think, much of that 1200 acre area. And from the air, it made it look like a rural farm area. They had fake houses up there, fake trees to hide this important strategic uh, location. And what, what sort of jobs were available to the up to 90,000 people that worked at the plant? Engineers, certainly engineers. And a lot of the engineers were material engineers. So they were using titanium and material that had not been used before. There was uh, not a lot of computer engineers. There was a lot of digital engineers. But then they had all the this, all this support that you might expect. There was a relatively large, I guess they call it first aid, but a hospital there on site for employees. Uh, credit unions, everything you might expect, I, I guess, across the gamut. I also read that at that point of its peak, you know, where there was 94,000 people working on site, apparently 35,000 of those, 94,000 were women. This is one of the places that Rosie the Riveter, um, you know, won the war for us. And these were the kind of jobs that a family of, of five could be supported by. David, how many siblings do you have? 
I've got one. My, my brother, Dan, who also was employed at Lockheed for uh, two or three years, worked mostly swing ship. But so, yeah, it was uh, it was our life. And Matt, the sort of jobs that are available today on this site. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I read that a Walmart, a single Walmart generally employs like 200 people. I think between the number of stores, I would guess that there are maybe somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000 people working on that site. And a lot of the jobs there, I, I would assume, are minimum wage. Something, Keith, real quick that is different yeah. about current employment and versus what it was then, I'm going to guess 60% of the employees working there were represented by a union. And how many union jobs are on that site today, would you, would you gather? Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> What was the experience of Lockheed beginning to wind down? Firstly, obviously myself, since I only worked there summers, but my dad who worked there from like 1940 till about 1980, it was over maybe a decade that the Lockheed activities there um, blossomed down. I think it was in the early 90s that it just went to zero. I think it was 92. Yeah, 1992, they, they shut it down. And yet it is, it's already in many ways, kind of getting buried. David, what do you remember about your dad and his working at Lockheed? What you'd see there on this industrial area was, I, I'm going to say hundreds of these three-wheel scooters that my dad used to drive on. And there'd be like a little place in the back, kind of like a pickup truck in these three-wheel scooters. And they'd be all over the darn place, um, you know, moving people and things from location to location. I think one thing I learned from my dad was my dad, I don't know if he was in the union at that time. He had been, or if he was in supervision, but regardless, they went on strike. So my dad was on strike, not drawing any pay, and he did not moan and groan. I saw him go out and find a job. He was digging ditches in the flood control for about two months. I remember his hands coming just, you know, bruised and such, but he just, he knew that's what he had to do. And I just, I I absorbed that. It's just kind of interesting for me to like go into that area and that neighborhood and think of, oh, grandpa like was riding around in a scooter, you know, <laughs> but like any, any memory that you have of like a specific incident or of him, uh, you know, using his, uh, his charm <laughs> and his humor to get things done. Like, would you say that like he, that was kind of part of his, uh, what made him successful in that role? I don't think there's any question. And I, what I think back to is his retirement, people coming up to me and they open up on what this guy was like. And it, it was that easygoing, communicative, could be trusted, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. So if, as a son, it was a, it was a great experience to hear what other people thought of my dad. Yeah, that's it. It's, and even like removed from it, from that generation, it's kind of, it's, it's interesting to me to kind of tie that visual picture to that place. Well, Matt, what are your <laughs> memories of your granddad? He's a very funny person. And that sounds like a trite sort of thing that that's the first thing that comes to my mind. But I mean, that as like a sort of a deep word of honor <laughs> for me, because it's about, I think he was very focused on making people laugh and bringing joy and uh, just kind of had a, a blue collar, honest, innate likability about him. Uh, 
everyone loved him. Everyone loved him. It's amazing, isn't it, how we can find a connection to home in the most unusual places, even at the worst mall in the world. The April Showers episode of The Lounge was perhaps the most collaborative of them all. Matt mentioned to me that he'd been following a young climate activist on Twitter by the name of Edgar McGregor. I reached out to him, and we had a great conversation. As I discussed this with the Double Batch Daddy founders, Tim Gibbs-Zender and his brother Tom, they shared with me a hymn called For the Blue-Green Hills of Earth that was written in 1969. The hymn was inspired by the experiences of the astronauts who were seeing the Earth for the first time from space. The hymn also became an inspiration for the creation of Earth Day in 1970. I presented the song to John Ballinger, who'd never heard it before. But a week later, John delivered a beautiful arrangement for Tim, Tom, and I to join him in singing. What you're about to hear is a little bit of my conversation with Edgar McGregor, followed by John Ballinger's arrangement of Blue Green Hills of Earth. Beginning in May 2019, I uh, really took notice at the level of trash that was in some of my local hiking trails uh, and parks. And so, uh, as I said, beginning in May 2019, I started going out every single day and picking up trash, no matter if I'd just gotten off a 12-hour shift in a warehouse, no matter if it was 105 degrees outside, it didn't matter. I was out there every day picking up. I go out with five-gallon buckets of trash by you know kind of limiting myself to a certain amount of trash per day i was able to push myself day after day after day on getting all the trash out of the park how many days did you go into eaton canyon park and come out with two buckets of trash currently i'm on day 613. do you have any sense of how much trash you've taken out of eaton canyon since you started it would come out to around 10 to 12,000 pounds of trash that I've collected in my park. That's really just a rough estimate. Honestly, sure. it's really hard to tell. Sure. I definitely have fallen in love with my park, especially now that so many people are paying attention to what I'm doing and I'm inspiring people around the world to do this as well. What I really want to stress to park services is that when you clean up a park, you can't stop and be done and say, okay, bye. You got to stay. You got to maintain that cleanliness. You need to keep sending people out all the time and making sure no new trash appears. Expecting people to not litter has been a solution that has not worked. The trash crisis is worse than it has ever been. What we need to do is we need to fund our park services to hire crews to work 50 weeks a year, 40-hour weeks to clean these places up. Depending on people to pack out their trash is not working. In 2017, the, youth, the climate change movement was still mired within the, is climate change real or is it fake? And what the youth populations in the climate movement did was we said, you know what? We don't care what you have to say. If you think climate change isn't real, we're not going to reply to you. We're not going to like your tweets. We're not going to retweet them and like, uh, you know, bash you anything. We're just going to straight up ignore you. We're running out of time to solve this crisis and we need to get to work now. And that decimated the climate deniers. And now we can actually have the critical conversations that we need to have.
the skies for every sea for our lives for all we cherish sing we are joyful song of peace for the mountains hills and silent majesty for the stars for all the heavens sing we are joyful song of peace sing we are joyful song of for Live from the Lounge was to create a podcast that invites you to experience the world as it is and to do it with style, grace, and humor. Every month, we invite you to groove with the rhythms of the season because once you're in tune with the never-ending cycle of birth, growth, withering, death, and new life, you start to see that pattern all around you. In each day, in each year, in every life, in every endeavor, things are born, they grow, they wither, they die, they start again. So let's round out this unabashed and unapologetic best of the lounge with the dinner and a movie segment from our California Dreamin' episode back in January. 
If there's one piece from the past nine months that really gets at what the lounge is all about, I think it might be this one. Would you believe me if I told you that there was a movie that I thought could change your life? I bet you would. But would you be more or less likely to believe me if I told you there was a consensus among the Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, and Freudian communities about the movie's transformational power? Would you be more or less likely to believe me if I told you it was a comedy starring Bill Murray? The movie I'm referring to is the 1993 classic Groundhog Day. You know the story. Bill Murray plays Phil, a bitter weatherman who's assigned to cover the traditional Groundhog Day festivities in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, with a cranky cameraman and a cute producer named Rita. On the way back home, there's a freak blizzard that inexplicably plunges Phil into a continuous loop of February 2nds. Hijinks ensue. The script, by Danny Rubin and Harold Ramis, takes Phil through the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, before he finally realizes that the best way to spend Groundhog Day is in service to others. This breaks the curse, Phil gets the girl, and decides to settle down in Punxsutawney to become the second most famous Punxsutawney Phil in town. If you've never seen it, you're in for a real treat. If you have, forgive me for being meta by saying that the film rewards repeat viewing. It's chock full of tiny little tidbits that'll keep your aha meter running. The more you watch it, the more you'll discover. But wait, you might exclaim, Groundhog Day is February 2nd. Why are you recommending it in January? Fact is, I had planned on presenting Groundhog Day in February, but in re-watching it again over the holidays, I realized that it's not really about Groundhog Day any more than American Graffiti is about spraying paint on a wall. Groundhog Day is a movie about learning to live your best life. It's a movie about new beginnings. It's about learning to break free of destructive patterns of behavior. It's about learning to think of others, learning to love, learning to be part of a community. And it's damn funny. It delivers a profound message with a light touch. But don't take my word for it. Literally, Every religious tradition and psychological association has claimed Groundhog Day as their own. Catholic Christians see Phil's repetition of Groundhog Day as a symbol of purgatory, the place between heaven and hell where the soul is allowed one last chance to purify itself of sin. Where you spend eternity is determined by your success or failure at purging evil from your life. Mainstream Protestants don't believe in purgatory, but they're all about purging sin. The Jewish community, which is less focused on an afterlife, sees nothing less than the purification of humanity in Phil's transformation from selfish bore to helpful neighbor. His selfless deeds transform Punxsutawney into a sort of heaven on earth. Buddhists see the samsara, or rebirth cycle, played out in this film. Phil lives many lifetimes in this repeated day and ultimately achieves nirvana and becomes a bodhisattva, the one who comes back to show the rest of us the way to achieve bliss. Psychoanalysts also embrace Groundhog Day as an example of the way we repeat destructive behaviors over and over again. 
Phil tries to bed women without consequence, to eat, smoke, and drink like it doesn't matter, and he even commits suicide, only to end up back in his bed at the B&B at 6 a.m. on February 2nd with Sonny and Cher serenading the start of a new day. Eventually, Phil learns to analyze and ultimately break free of the repetitive habits that do not provide real pleasure, and he moves forward with his life transformed. Of course, you don't need to practice or believe any of this stuff in order to enjoy Groundhog Day, and that's what makes it so great. It's one of the rare films that is perfectly happy being a romantic comedy while gently welcoming you to dig deeper to uncover its life-changing possibilities. The dish that best encapsulates the higher meaning of Groundhog Day, the repetition of the same action over and over, is the fleeting mention of flapjacks. I'm sure they're not referring to the flapjacks of the UK, which are more like granola bars. These are the flapjacks that are kind of a stand-in for pancakes. Pancakes. You almost never have less than one, and they're all exactly the same, right? No. Emphatically no. A common misconception of Groundhog Day is that Phil lives out the exact same day over and over again— But that's not entirely true. The day starts the same way, but based on Phil's choices, each Groundhog Day is very different than the day before. Phil's successes and failures inform his choices, and his choices determine how each day plays out. Pancakes offer the same opportunity. You can have a thin pancake. You can make a fluffy one. You can make them large, like one great big pan cake, or do dozens of small silver dollar versions. You can top them with anything. You can fill them with anything. In fact, your first batch of the morning is going to be different than your last because your pan or griddle will heat up over time. And even if you were to try to make each pancake exactly the same, even if you measure exactly the same amount of batter into a pan whose heat you can control perfectly, you are still going to get pancakes that are utterly unique unto themselves. You can not make two pancakes that are exactly the same. How great is that? I don't want to get too prescriptive on the recipe here. You'll get no judgment from me if you choose to make instant batter, and you don't get extra points for seeking out hand-milled flour, locally sourced eggs, and milk. The pancake is yours to shape and mold as you see fit. If you're inspired, put that inspiration into your creation. If you just want something to carry you through the morning, that's cool too. I'm going to invite you to try this buttermilk batter from scratch, though, because I think it's nice to know what goes into Instant Mix. It's from Alton Brown. And he smartly advises us to make a large quantity of the dry mix to have on hand for any time the pancake inspiration strikes. It's basically flour, baking powder, baking soda, and a little salt and sugar. It's that simple. Now, when you're ready to cook, you add to the instant mix two eggs or an egg substitute, two cups of buttermilk or regular milk or soy or almond or whatever, and four tablespoons of melted butter. But I bet you could use coconut oil for a hint of tropical flavor, and you're ready to hit the griddle. From this point, 
the pancake is yours to enjoy any damned way you choose. Add cinnamon or nutmeg or cloves or peppermint to the mix for flavor. Add a fruit puree for color. Mix in a banana and walnut chutney for depth and crunch. Chocolate chips are a decadent choice that I love. Now, how will you top them? Will you top it with a simple maple syrup? Or are you a log cabin or Mrs. Butterworth's type? How about applesauce or peanut butter? Marshmallows, whipped cream, and rainbow sprinkles make for a festive presentation. The point is, there are a billion ways to make a pancake, and none of them are wrong. Just like there are a billion ways to live a day. Even if it feels like the same day over and over. It's always up to you. What a day for a daydream What a day for a daydreaming boy And I'm lost in a daydream Dreaming about my bundle of joy And even if time ain't really on my side It's one of those days for taking a walk outside I'm blowing the day to take a walk in the sun and fall out my face on somebody's new mode lawn I've been having a sweet dream. sweet dream I've been dreaming since I woke up today It's starring me and my sweet thing Cause she's the one who makes me feel this way And even if time is passing me by a lot I couldn't care less about the dues you say I got Tomorrow I'll pay the dues for dropping my load A pie in the face for being a sleepy bulldog And you can be sure that if you're feeling a daydream will last long into the night Tomorrow at breakfast you may pick up your ears Or you may be daydreaming for a thousand years What a day for a daydream Custom made for a daydreaming boy And I'm lost in a daydream our lounge. We'll be back next month with an all new podcast, but until then, I do hope you'll find a way to stay cool. May I suggest swimming, watermelon, and popsicles? Here's the who did what. Our lounge is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Matt and Carol Olmos write all of our radio shows. John Ballinger is our musical director, 
Double Batch Daddy is our house band. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you to learn, to love, to lounge. <laughs>